the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. As we close out another week, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything that's on your heart. All you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-5757. Easier way to remember it, maybe, is 630-KSLR. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app, Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I look forward to any calls and questions that you have today. Tonight, I need you to pray for me. We're starting the Great Tribulation here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We are in Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to do, I think, the first 11 verses tonight. Uh, And this is when the world gets really dark. You know, I was sharing with the church that, you know, everybody's interested in, at least they think they're interested in, uh, all the judgments and all of the, the, the symbolism and, and boy, this is hard to understand, which it really isn't that all, that all that hard to understand. But the truth is it, it gets tiring. It gets tiring. Uh, tonight, uh, nearly 2 billion people on the earth are going to die. That's destruction on a scale that we've never even been able to imagine. Think about this. Nearly 2 billion people tonight in our study are going to die in the Great Tribulation. These are men and women with names. There are neighbors, there are friends, there are family members. I've shared with you many, many times, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is coming and he's coming soon. And then the world will be plunged into this Great Tribulation. And what that means for you and for me is that we've got to be active in sharing our faith. Because eternity and torment is what lies ahead for the people who don't know Jesus. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So tonight, I hope it's interesting, but at the same time, I hope we receive it with a broken heart. Uh, I hope that we don't have the, well, everybody made their choices, so they've got to deal with it type of attitude. Whenever we're talking about the Great Tribulation, it needs to literally break our hearts because people we care about are going to be going through it. All the more reason to make sure you're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's tonight. I'm teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on Sunday. And um, then we're almost at the end of the month of October already. So thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's get to some questions that have been sent in uh, while we await any and all phone calls that you have. Uh, Here is a question from Scott from our mobile app. Um, Pastor Ron, you can hear Scott's heart here. Pastor Ron, as Christians, what should we do about the missionary hostage situation in Haiti? I just heard that kidnappers are asking for $1 million per person. That's $17 million. Hard to just sit here 
and watch. Um, Scott, let me give you a little bit of, of counsel. Um, um, when we pray, we're not just sitting here and watching. I think sometimes we as believers truly underestimate the power of prayer. Uh, I remember some time ago um, reading the stories. I never watched the video that it, that it was available online of of the uh, Coptic Christians um, losing their heads uh, on a beach at the hands of ISIS, all because of their faith. And it rips your heart apart. But apart from prayer, there's nothing we can do from thousands of miles away. I don't have any answers. My heart is with those who are in danger. My heart is with their family members. But praying, Scott, is what we can do. Now, here's the counsel that I want to give. And this is not for Scott. This is for all of us. Um, I love Scott's heart. You know, his heart is hurting. He wants to do something. He wants to be active. I get that. But as human beings, none of us are built, with or without Christ, none of us are built to be able to handle all of the pain in the world that we see. You know, this kind of stuff that used to go on and, and, and virtually nobody knew about it because there wasn't instant information available. Um, now we're exposed to all of that. And we've got to be able to stay balanced in our approach. It's not our responsibility to do something we can storm the throne of God in prayer. We can plead with the Lord to deliver them. And I hope all of you are praying continually for these hostages and their families. Um, the world is full of evil people. So what we do is we pray. We stay active in sharing our faith because even though the people in your sphere of life, Scott, are hostages in danger of losing their lives right now. They're in danger of spending eternity separated from Jesus Christ. So we pray and we live our lives full of the joy of the Lord, even in difficult times like this. So what we've got to do is focus on our responsibility individually. We're just one piece of the puzzle. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says that God puts us where we are at the time we are to help us find God and to accomplish the work that God has planned for us to do. If you were in Haiti, or if you were in other difficult situations, then maybe you'd be God's person for that situation. But, but Scott, we're here in Texas, and our job is to rightly represent Christ to the people that we come into contact with day in and day out. You know, with the advent of the Internet, and when I say the advent, the Internet's been around for a very, very long time. But the, the idea now that we get all of our news, all of our conversation, we get our information from, I had somebody the other day talk about uh, Wikipedia, like Wikipedia was a, an authoritative source for information. Um, all we can do is fulfill our obligation to God every day. And the way we do that is to be filled with the Spirit of God, to be active, as I said earlier, in sharing our faith, reaching out to the people that God puts in front of us. And while we can't affect or influence the people that are uh, not in front of us, as I said, all we can do is pray for them. Letting the heaviness of the pain in this world Keep us from effectively serving the Lord where we are at the time we are is the wrong thing to do. Some people, Scott, you appear to be one of them, just have the sense of, well, there's got to be justice in this world. Some people, the way they're, they're, they're built, it's just, okay, I've got to make wrong things right. But we also have to be realistic about our power or authority to be able to do so. We really don't have any. And God does, and a day is coming, Scott, I believe that day is coming soon, 
A day is coming when God is going to set things right. And as believers, we have to focus on our calling. And I can certainly be empathetic. As I said, I can cry out to God on their behalf. But there's nothing else I can do except to share Jesus with people that he brings into my sphere of influence. So, Scott, God bless you for your heart. Pray, pray, pray. I know you obviously have been, um, but just remember to serve the Lord. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from our email inbox. I'm going to combine this one. This one's from Joe. I'm going to combine this one with another one that basically deals with the same thing without calling it uh, Calvinism. Joe says, hello, Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking my question. What is Calvinism and why is it wrong teaching? And then he says, thank you. Uh, The other question that is uh, similar to it uh, is an anonymous question. I think it's the same um, person who sent one last week. And I don't think he listened to my answer. So it's anonymous, and I'm going to read the question, then I'll kind of combine these two questions in one answer. I once heard Billy Graham say, God does not send people to hell. Is this true? My thought is that it that God does send people to hell because he created them to either love him or not love him. God can change hearts and minds if he chooses to, but for many people he does not. I understand how God chooses some people to go to heaven and some not. And I know he is a just God and has to judge all evil and good. I also understand that God chooses people before they are born to go to heaven and hell. And so if he chooses some to go to heaven or hell, then he ultimately has the power, the final say-so, who is in heaven and hell. Is that right? We know that God is sovereign over all things. And if he knows who will reject him during the person's lifetime, couldn't God make more people to serve him? Thank you for your wisdom and clarification. Anonymous, uh, I'm going I'm to start with Calvinism for Joe's question, and then I'm going to get to yours. And please tune in and listen to this, because your uh, question is filled with inaccuracies. Uh, and I really want you to understand both the heart of God, I want you to understand the Word of God, and I want you to understand the character and nature of God. Okay? Calvinism, first and foremost, is simply... Uh, a, a teaching, it's Reformed theology, um, that is, I think, way out of balance. There's, 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 there's polar opposites. Arminianism is on one end of the out-of-balance spectrum. Calvinism is on the other end of the out-of-balance uh, spectrum. Calvinism uh, can be summed up with the acrostic tulip. Uh, the T stands for total depravity. The U is for unconditional election. The L for limited atonement. The I is for irresistible grace. And the P is for perseverance of the saints. That is a basic outline of how Calvinists see themselves. Now, there is disagreement even among Calvinists. There are some who say, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist, and almost always the one point that they they reject is the limited atonement. I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but they, they basically agree that God, like the question, the anonymous question, God chooses who's going to be in heaven and who's going to be in hell, and there's nothing that we can do that. The I, the irresistible grace, their position is, well, nobody can resist the grace of God because he is sovereign, and um, and and so his grace is irresistible. If he's calling somebody, they have no choice. If he's rejected somebody, they have no choice. But that perverts the character of God to such a degree that, at least in my mind, I want to say this carefully because Calvinists are not heretics. They still fall in line with Orthodox Christianity, the essentials of the historic Christian faith. But limited atonement, that Jesus died only for the elect is borderline heresy. For God so loved the world. The most famous verse we have in our New Testament. It doesn't say for God so loved the ones he chose. Or for God so loved the elect. Jesus' death is effective, efficient. I think the theological word is efficacious for everybody who's ever lived. But it's only effective or efficient for those who choose. 
So when a Calvinist says, well, I believe in limited atonement, so God choose some for hell, some for, for, for heaven, then, then basically they're, they're denying the work. They're denying the work that God uh, has, has already declared in his word. So here's the problem with Calvinism. You said, why is it wrong teaching? Uh, because God loves everybody. God is love. God doesn't love some and hate some, so he chooses those that, that are going to hell because he hated them. God loves them. Now, the basis of God choosing, and this is for you, Anonymous, and I told, said this in the, the response that you uh, that I gave to your last question last week, or maybe it was even earlier this week. Um, God chooses people based on his foreknowledge. Romans 8, 29, 1 Peter chapter 1, the first two verses. God makes his choice based on his foreknowledge. God lives outside of time and space, and he knows everything. So to God, the future is the same as the present. So, and I'll use me as an example. God knew when I was born that I was going to become his child. Romans 8.29 says, my paraphrase, that God set his love upon me And no matter how badly I treated him, no matter how evil I was in my life, God decided he wasn't going to change his mind about loving me, no matter how hard I tried to make him change his mind. So what he did was, he said, I set my love upon Ron because Ron's going to love me one day. Now, if God knows somebody isn't going to choose him, well, God still loves him. But God's not going to violate his free will. And the Calvinist basically says nobody has free will. The total depravity says that, that we're so depraved. Excuse me. God says we're so depraved, or the Calvinist says we're so depraved that we can't choose God. We're so dead that we don't even have the ability to say, okay, I need Jesus. And the only way they say that we can do that is that God has chosen us and who can resist his will. So, the basis of choice, election is a biblical doctrine, but a Reformed understanding, a Calvinist understanding of that doctrine, their concept of grace isn't grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. That's what grace is. But their understanding is sovereign grace. And they've got a God who sits in heaven and says yes to one and no to another. And that's simply not consistent with what the Word says. Calvinism is a doctrine that you cannot come up with simply by reading the Bible. You've got to have a systematic theology. You've got to have an intention that says, okay, I'm going to lay my systematic theology, which is Calvinism. I'm going to lay that over the scriptures and view everything in the Bible through that filter. And, of course, we've got a lot of Calvinist Bible teachers who, except for that one doctrine, are wonderful teachers truly save men. But the truth is, they're wrong in this area because what they say misrepresents the character and the nature of God. Now, let me be very specific, anonymous, with what you said. You once heard Billy Graham say, God does not send people to hell. You asked me if that's true. It's true. God doesn't send anyone to hell. He gives us... He, he allows us to make that choice. That's what free will is invitations the, the need to choose is appointed a man once to die and then face the judgment in that life that we have we've got to make a choice do we want to spend eternity with Jesus or separated from Jesus one we call heaven the other we call hell God does not send people to hell God simply honors the choice that we make in life he honors that choice in eternity can you imagine how mean it would be, how cruel it would be of God. If somebody said for a whole lifetime, I don't want anything to do with God, I want to be independent of God, I want to do my own thing, and then suddenly when that person dies, God looks at him and says, well, I I know you didn't want anything to do with me, but I chose you, so you're going to come to heaven. No, God simply honors the choice that we make while we live. He honors that choice in eternity. So Billy Graham was right. God doesn't send people to hell. In fact, and I say this often, we literally have to step over Jesus' dead body. 
Let me say this, his dead and risen body, to choose hell. So God makes it as difficult as he possibly can. So your thought that God sends people to hell because he created them to either love him or not love him is completely incorrect. We are all created. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, we're created to worship him, to love him. And that's why people that don't know God are so angry and they're so empty. That's why all the money in the world, all the power in the world never satisfies. That's why rich people and powerful people kill themselves or get hooked on drugs or go through one marriage after another marriage after another marriage because they're looking for something to fill that hole that God created in them. So God created us all to love him. And if we choose not to, well, then that results in a miserable, painful life. It's also not true, as you ask. You said, you understand how God used some people to go to heaven and others to go to hell. That's not God. So here's what you're doing. You're either reading a lot of Calvinist material or you're listening to some Calvinists and you've, you've sort of taken the simplistic view of God's choice. Calvinism answers a lot of questions. Why do some people, no matter what we do, they just don't respond to the word of God? Um, Calvinism explains it away nicely. The problem is it's wrong. It's not, not a correct explanation. You're right. God is just and God does has to judge evil and good and he will do that. But God doesn't choose people before they are born to go to heaven and hell. He knows what choice they're going to make. He knows where they're going to spend eternity, but he doesn't cause that choice. And that's really important. God knows everything. Imagine if you knew the the score of the game last night. I was watching the Dodgers and the Braves last night. The Braves jumped out to a 2-0 lead. And it looked like the Braves were going to win and and clinch the pennant and get ready to go to the World Series. Well, Well, after that first inning... When it looks like, oh, the Braves are going to keep beating the Dodgers. Uh, if you ask God, okay, God, who do, I want to bet on, on the Dodgers. Who do you want to bet on? He, he would have said, well, I'm not going to bet on the Braves because I know they're going to lose. Well, the same thing is true in this much more important area of salvation. So please stop thinking that God chooses people before they're born. We're all chosen. Doctrine is true. But God doesn't make the choice. We do. And the invitation is universally given to all people. We know that God is sovereign over all things. You said that. And you're right. He is. But God's sovereignty and his power is never more evident than when he takes people who choose against him to still accomplish his will in this world. You said if he knows who will reject him during the person's lifetime, couldn't God make more people to serve him? Remember, God doesn't make people anymore. People are made. He God, God made Adam and God made Eve. But the rest of us are all products of the birth process, the creation process. Men and women have sex. The woman gets pregnant. They give birth to a child. And that child becomes a living, breathing who has the right to make his or her own choice. And God never interferes with that other than constructing their lives to get them to that place where they will cry out and ask God to resolve it. It's one of the reasons, by the way, Anonymous, that God asks us to keep praying for the people who are lost. You might think, well, why would God ask me to pray for somebody who he knows isn't going to choose him back and go to heaven? Well, because... Sometimes prayer changes things, and that's a difficult thing for us to understand as well. But when God asks us to pray for people who are lost, well, we do it because we want those people to be in heaven because that's what God wanted. So I hope that answers both questions. It's, it's, uh, they're, they're important questions, but these are the things where you've really got to be able to say, God, here's your character. Your word says that you are love. So anybody that says, well, God hates some people and he creates them just to go to hell is somebody who is conflicted about the character and the nature of God.
So open your Bible, read it for what it says, and you're going to find your perspective on who he is is going to change. It's always, and we're just a little over a minute left before this half of the program, so I'll I'll start on other questions and we'll await phone calls on the other side of the break. But it's one of the reasons that we've really got to know who he is personally. Abraham knew who God was when Jesus appeared to him in in, um, uh, Genesis 18 and 19 on the basis of Jesus' character. He pleaded with, he negotiated with God for the lives of the unrighteous. Moses pleaded with God not to desert or abandon his people. I always liked it that Moses and God seemed to sort of have a little spat going on between about whose people they were when Moses was fed up. God, these people you gave me. And then God would simply answer, no, Moses, they're your people. But he always put it in Moses' heart to pray for them. He was an intercessor, a type of Christ. Very important stuff. And if you have a, a, an improper perspective about who God is, you don't understand, you can't understand the doctrine of election. Well, we have only 30 minutes left in the week. We'd love to liven this up with your live phone calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Friday show, 340-9585. Hey, I was listening. I don't always listen during the breaks, but I was listening to a new commercial uh, in the slot for uh, um, Pastor Sean Azaro. And the church work he's doing there. I enjoy listening to Sean on the radio. Uh, he comes on before we do in the evening. I think he comes on 530-ish uh, on KSLR. And I enjoy his teaching. Um, I've, I've not met him personally, uh, but I've listened to him quite a lot. And uh, he just seems like a really, really good, solid teacher. And, and uh, it was good to hear his commercial on the program. Uh, let's go to a phone call. We've got Marty calling from San Antonio on line one. Marty, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Um, Hi. I have a question. How are you? I'm, I'm good. calling because I I have a question about okay. depression and the Bible for yes. Christianity. Um, I have depression and I've had it for a number of years. I was diagnosed with it about 10 years ago and it runs in my family and my question is I've I've never had suicidal thoughts but I know people who have family members who have committed suicide and my question is would God condemn someone who kills himself as a result of having depression when I mean we know that we now know depression is like any other disease, like diabetes or something like that. Would Jesus, would God punish you, or would you be condemned to hell if you commit suicide because you have depression? Yeah. And Mari, you're being straight up with me that you don't have suicidal thoughts? Straight up. I love Jesus, okay. and I that's not one of my symptoms, never has been. Okay, one other question, and then I'll, I'll give you a, a complete answer. Uh, have have you were you diagnosed as uh, having depression before you got saved or since you got saved? Um, it was after. After you got saved. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, thank you, Marty. Um, the, the reason I ask the question, Marty, we get people that call and, and want to know if it, if they go to heaven, if they killed themselves. And I just want to be sure God loves you. And, and, uh, I, I wouldn't want to, I, I would approach the answer very differently. First, let me say this. Depression is a real thing. 
It's a real thing. I don't like the psychological approach to it. Um, I, I think the answer is always spiritual. I think the answer is always the word of God. But we who are believers, we need to understand there's nothing unspiritual about having uh, depression. I, I don't agree with what Marty said about it being like any other disease. Uh, it's not. Uh, diseases of the body can be diagnosed and they can be treated. Disease of the mind can't. Uh, there, there's a lot of disputes about how to treat certain um, uh, mental illnesses and, and, and com- uh, mental conditions. Um, and, and there's not widespread agreement. But this idea that it's just like any other disease, I think, is something that we have to be uh, on guard against. Now, when we are prone to suffering depression, there's a couple of things that we've got to remember. This is a fight for your life. Satan will use depression to try to destroy the fruit that comes from your life. Um, he's not going to have mercy because you're a good person and you, you just, you've, you've had enough and you're depressed. Uh, in the Bible, Monty, the, the Apostle Paul was depressed on three occasions so deeply that only a visit, a personal visitation from Jesus sort of dragged him out of it. Such was the, that's the spiritual attack on the Apostle Paul. So it's a real thing. Now, with regard to what Jesus would do, uh, we live in a Catholic culture when suicide is considered a, a sin unto death. In other words, no one who commits suicide can go to heaven. That's simply not true. Um, Mar, I've had a, a couple of people over our 26 years here who I knew were Christians who loved Jesus with all of their heart, um, but but they lost the spiritual battle. Uh, the enemy was pounding and deceiving them, and, and it got to the point where they just gave up, uh, and, and they took their own lives. And I, I am going to see them in heaven. So suicide doesn't disqualify you. Remember, Jesus isn't looking to condemn you. As a born-again believer, and I love the way you answered so quickly, no, I love Jesus with all of my heart, you said. Well, Jesus loves you infinitely more. And he's not looking to condemn. He's looking to save. And uh, because you belong to him, your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. And so there's not one sin that can cancel all that out. Now, does God want you to kill yourself? Of course not. But we need to understand that that the blood of Jesus covers all sin. So in your own personal battle against depression, Mari, I, I realize when you're depressed, and sometimes even less than that, when you're discouraged, you're going through something that's just very difficult and, and, you, and you get tired and we get tired physically, we get tired emotionally. Um, the one thing you don't feel like doing is praying. The one thing you don't feel like doing is opening the Bible. The one thing you don't feel like doing is getting involved in church and serving other people. But here's what I can promise you, Monty. When you are starting to deal with depression, you go serve others, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and the depression is going to flee. In the presence of the Lord is the fullness of joy, we're told. That doesn't mean that things that make you depressed or the, the, the physical condition is going to go away. What it means is that he will overcome. And that means you're in a fight. And you have to fight like crazy to do the thing that you don't feel like doing. Paula deals with ladies all the time who are talking about their battle with depression. And, and they'll say, well, I just don't feel like getting out of bed. I don't. And Paula will say, look, you need to get out of bed. You need to get going. And she'll give them, she'll start telling them, look, I'm going to call back in, in 15 minutes. I want to... I wanna, Pick up the phone. I want you to tell me that you're out of bed. Then she'll say, okay, now I want you to go get a shower. And when you're out of the shower, call me. And then out of the shower, they'll call her. Okay, let's read a chapter in the Bible together. See, you got to fight because you don't feel like doing any of those things. And, Mari, that's when the power of the Holy Spirit will really and truly come over you. And that's the way we fight depression. It's real. It's not a lack of faith. It's not that there's anything wrong with you. It's just something that you've got to fight every single day. And you can't give in. The enemy is going to be relentless in trying to destroy you. But no, he is. Uh, Jesus would not ever condemn. We will stand before the Lord and be granted entrance to heaven 
or refused entrance to heaven based on one thing and one thing only. What did we do with Jesus Christ? So, Mari, thank you very, very much for the question. God bless you, and you keep loving Jesus and keep serving him. 340-9585. Here is a question that was called in to our studio producer anonymously. Is it sound doctrine to believe in the Matthew Henry Bible ter- Bible commentary? I know what you're asking, but I, I need to answer the question that was asked. No, it's not sound doctrine to believe in the Matthew Henry Bible commentary. The Matthew Henry commentary is fairly solid. I don't think there's a whole bunch that's wrong with it. I personally don't like it. Uh, it's so old. It's public domain, and that's why it's available on the Bible programs for free. Uh, but it's um, it, it's it, it's it's not something we believe in. But it, it will help us in some cases to sort out sound doctrine. So I think I think what you're asking is it safe? And yes, it's safe. But please don't rely on commentaries. Commentaries can be helpful. But first, try to figure it out. Let the Holy Spirit be your teacher first and foremost. And then you can check the commentaries to see whether or not you're off base. Chances are, uh, if if you've come up with a doctrine that nobody else believes in, uh, Matthew Henry doesn't says that, well, that's wrong, then, then you might be off base. But that's okay. God will use that to sort of sharpen your ability to understand sound doctrine. Uh, so I think it's okay. Again, I'm not a big fan. I think it's it's a little bit simplistic, uh, and again, I just uh, th- there are lots better commentators um, that I enjoy uh, a bunch more. But but I think it's okay, anonymous. So I hope that helps you. Here is a question uh, that is anonymous from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. I have heard you say doctrine matters. By the way, I wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah, let me let me say one thing before I go on with the question. Sound doctrine matters. Yeah, doctrine matters. But having sound doctrine is very, very important. And then Anonymous says, with all due respect, and I always go, oh, what's coming now? With all due respect, do you think the doctrine you've taught has always been 100% accurate? Has changed or differs from other teachers of the Bible? I venture to say that you've disagreed with some of the teachings from people like Martin Luther, Billy Graham, John MacArthur, Charles Spurgeon, N.T. Wright, R.C. Sproul, and so many others to mention. And then he says, parenthetically, I'm trying to go with different denominations. They believe what they're teaching is accurate, but I'm sure you don't always agree with everything they've taught or said. What would you say to the Bible scholars who differ from your biblical interpretation and understanding? Perhaps... Can your teaching be inaccurate and they can be right? I believe we can't always be right. Then he says, if you are right, and then he says again parenthetically, which I believe you are, what can I say to that person when I'm sharing my views, which agree with your views, but they differ? My response can't be, let me get someone who is more knowledgeable. Uh, A couple of things. Nobody's doctrine is 100% right. I've said this many, many times. Uh, The people... Uh, in the, when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of people there with really messed up doctrine. God alone knows the condition of their heart. God alone knows the condition of their heart. And nobody's doctrine is perfect. I'll just give you some examples from the people that you mentioned. Martin Luther was a vicious anti-Semite. Now he started there, the Reformation of the Church. Um, but But... but how sound is his doctrine if he's an anti-Semite? Billy Graham is an evangelist. I don't think I've ever said that I disagree with anything Billy Graham said, but Billy Graham would be the first to tell you that his doctrine was never perfect. He was doing his job as an evangelist. John MacArthur, I have praised many times on this program. And John MacArthur is a Calvinist. And I think, except for what he teaches on election, I think John MacArthur is rock solid and he has served God faithfully for more than 50 years. And believe me, even though his doctrine on election is wrong, and I believe it's terribly wrong, he's going to be in heaven and people like me 
well, we're not going to be in a position to, to, I'll be looking up at John MacArthur, believe me. He's been used by the Lord to do many, many wonderful things. You mentioned Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a man who was hated in his lifetime. He literally died in disgrace. It wasn't until there was some time, 50 years or more after his death, that people realized the genius of Charles Spurgeon. N.T. Wright, I have real problems with N.T. Wright. He's come up with a new perspective on Paul. There's no new perspective. N.T. Wright denies the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. I consider that an essential historic Christian faith. But I don't know N.T. Wright personally. God knows his heart and I don't. R.C. Sproul, I think, was a dangerous teacher. And he's in heaven. And dangerous because he was so convinced that Calvinism was the only way. He was very persuasive. I think R.C. Sproul is responsible for doing a lot of damage to evangelism within the Reformed ranks. So just in, in, in the names that you mentioned, uh, I'm pretty convinced that all those people are going to be in heaven. So we're all going to be in heaven as long as we believe in Jesus Christ, as long as we're born again. But doctrine is a matter of rightly dividing the word of God. So you say, what would you say to the Bible scholars who differ from me on those things? I would simply say, let's open the Bible and talk about what it says. I think the one thing that I do, as consistently as anyone, is I take the Bible at face value. This is what it says, and it means what it says. And I don't reinterpret it, what it says, through some lens of systematic theology that shapes my views. And so what I would do and what I would ask you to do when you're talking with someone is say, let's sit down and open the Bible. I'll give you just one example. I used it earlier in the week when uh, somebody called about once they've always said, um, uh, um, when, when we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Bible clearly says that when we're born again, God gives us a deposit, the Holy Spirit, which guarantees our inheritance in heaven. Now that means God is the one making the guarantee. And if God can't guarantee, then nobody can't guarantee. So I would, somebody wants to argue about our eternal security. I would say, let's exegete those verses. What does it say? Don't interpret it. Don't say, yeah, but in another place it says, what does this say? Because when something is said very clearly, then we can sit down and we can talk about that and we have solid ground. So I don't spend a lot of time uh, anonymous arguing with people. Uh, This is what the Bible says. Uh, It means what it says. And if somebody wants to talk about that without misunderstanding, because they're looking at it through through a different lens, uh, then I think we can talk. Otherwise, I don't worry about it. So what I would ask you to do when you're talking to somebody, sharing your views, um, when they differ, just say, well, you know, to each his own. But you can't explain to me biblically why you believe, for example, that you can lose your salvation, or why you believe, for example, that Calvinism is right. So just read it. Read it in context. And then be content not to argue, not to win people or convert people who are already Christians. Just be content to live your life so one day you're going to stand before Jesus and say, Lord, you said it and I believed it. And if I'm wrong, well, then I was wrong because I believed in your word, every word. And that's my comfort, Anonymous. I'm going to stand before Jesus and when I find out that my doctrine was wrong in this area or that area, I'm going to be able to say, well, you know, Lord, my heart, you know, I really believe this was true based on what this said. And I think that's pretty solid ground to be on. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Anonymous. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Patricia. She said, women are supposed to dress modestly, but how do we objectively judge what is modest or is not modest? Patricia, that's a great question. Um, You know, a lot of times, Paula, in fact, we just talked about this. uh, When we were taking our break a week before this, uh, we're in California, 
and we went to a Calvary Chapel on a Sunday uh, that at the beach. And um, um, I got up and started to get dressed, and Paula said, you're wearing shorts? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm wearing shorts. And she said, well, you don't ever wear shorts to church. I said, well, I don't have a church at the beach. And we went to Calvary Chapel in Oceanside, California. It was a great church, by the way. I had a great time. But the, the, uh, there was a lot of people dressed just like me and worse. Well, modesty is different. Um, in in Hawaii, if you you're going to beach, you're going to church on the beach. You know, you wear a bathing suit, and nobody would think anything of it. If you do that here in Texas, well, then people would look at you because that's not modesty. So yeah, women are to dress modestly, and 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 the only thing that we're to judge, Patricia, is our own dress. So when you stand in front of a mirror and you're getting ready to go to church. Or, or even if it's just to go out or something, as a Christian woman, look in the mirror, and you know if it's modest or immodest. We're not dressing to be attractive to others. We're not dressing uh, to, um, you know, draw attention to certain body parts. We're dressing to please the Lord. And I think when we look in the mirror, Patricia, when you look in the mirror, you know whether or not your dress is modest. And you know just because it's comfortable. I've watched Paula sometimes change clothes three and four times. She just wants to be sure that somebody will buy her something or, or I'll say, Paul, I like this. Why don't you get this? And she'll try it on. And she'll say, oh, I just wouldn't be comfortable. And of course, I say, well, I'm really comfortable with it. But if you're not, I don't want you to get it. So I think we know what's modest. But it's between you and the Lord. Don't let anybody else judge it. It's between you and the Lord. And certainly, don't get involved in judging somebody else in terms of whether or not they're being modest or not. I think, Patricia, we've done a lot of damage over the years to especially young converts, women in particular, who just get saved or they come to church and get saved and because they're brand new believers, they don't automatically think the way they dress is wrong. And I think a lot of times they've been uh, hurt by women who talk about them behind their backs. Because, well, did you see how low cut that dress was or how short their dress was? Years ago, we had a, a woman who made a big deal out of the fact that some of the women on our worship team on stage um, had dresses that didn't cover their knees entirely. And she thought that was terrible. I have a husband who, who has a wandering eye and you're leading him to less. That's nonsense. So here's what we do. We just stand in front of a mirror and say, Jesus, I think I look good. What do you think? And enjoy it. So Patricia, thanks a lot. Time for one more question. This is from Bruce. He says, I give faithfully to my church, but want to know if it's okay to give to other causes as well, even if they're not Christian causes. Should all my money go to the local church? Bruce, it's your money. And you're going to be a steward of that money. You're going to explain to Jesus what you did with what he blessed you with. And as long as you can say, Jesus, I gave this to this cause or to that cause, even if it's not a Christian cause, I did that with the right heart because I wanted to glorify you. Then there's going to be reward for, for that kind of giving. Having said that, um, most of the money that Christians give should go to their local church. I, I, I've always found it difficult to understand why people would want to go to a church and then not support the vision of ministry that God has given for that church. And I think that's uh, being unfaithful. I really do. Um, but but certainly all of your money, you can do with it what you want, just remembering that you're going to give account to the Lord for your faithfulness. He, he trusts you with it. He wants you to ask him what to do with it. And when you do that, then you can do it um, for your glory. But But of course, you can give to whomever you choose. But remember, you certainly ought to be giving to the local church primarily because that's your body. You belong to that church body. You're a part, an extension of the vision that God has given them. 
That matters a whole bunch. So, Bruce, I hope that answers your question. Uh, let me see if I can get one more question in. I got two minutes. Okay, I can do this. Marcy wants to know, is worrying always a sin? I can't seem to stop worrying about nearly everything. Marcy, I think worrying is becoming a sin for you. If you can't stop worrying about everything, this is an issue of faith. And because it's an issue of faith, you've got to be like the disciples. Say, Lord, increase my faith. Because Jesus tells us over and over not to worry. Now, he knows we're humans. He knows we're going to worry. But what you've got to do is you've got to realize that Jesus wants to carry those things you're worried about. And he wants you to have enough faith in him to trust him with those things instead of you being worried, especially if you're worried to the point where you're, 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 you're not producing fruit for the kingdom of God, then, then that's when worry becomes a sin. So stop worrying about things, and you do that by being close to Jesus. You can't just flip a switch and suddenly worry goes away. There's an enemy who's been pretty effective at making you a worrier, I can promise you Jesus will be even more effective about increasing your faith. So just trust in him and recognize and maybe repent for the fact that you haven't trusted the Lord and through worry you've tried to take matters into your own hands. And if you're honest, it's affected your relationship with the Lord. And he wants to resolve that once and for all. So Marcy, thank you for asking the question. I hope that works. Hey, we've had a good week on the program. Lots and lots of questions. Uh, we'll be back on Monday, Lord willing. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. This is The Word to Stand Up for Life. Um, 4 o'clock on Monday, a.m. 6.30, The Word. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.